totemism, tattoo, and fetishism as forms of sign language. Read by Graham Dunlop. Edited by Darren Grimes. With due search, we shall find that the unwritten and remotest past of primitive man is not immemorial after all that may have been lost by the way. Most obscure conditions have been more or less preserved and represented in the drama of primitive customs, in the mirror of mythology and the sign language of totemism. Ceremonial rites were established as the means of memorizing facts in sign language, when there were no written records of the human past. In these the knowledge was acted, the ritual was exhibited, and kept in ever-living memory by continual repetition. The mysteries, totemic or religious, were founded on this basis of action. Dancing, for example, was a mode of sign language in all the mysteries. To know certain mysteries implied the ability to dance them, when they could not be otherwise expressed. The Bushmen say that the mantis deity Khan taught them the mysteries of dancing under the type of the praying mantis or the leaping grasshopper. Primitive men had observed the ways and works of nature and imitated all that they might as a means of thinking their meaning when they could not talk. They danced it with the grasshopper. They writhed and swelled and puffed it up with the serpent. They panted it with the lion, roared it with the hippopotamus, hummed it with the insects, pawed and clicked it with the ape. In short, they acted in accordance with the example of their forerunners on the earth. They not only wore the skins of animals and feathers of birds, they made their motions in totemic dances and imitated their cries as a primary means of making themselves understood. From the beginning in the far-off misty morning of the past, dancing in the likeness of animals was a totemic mode of demonstration. Amongst the earliest deities of Egypt are Apt and Bess, who issue forth from inner Africa as dancers in the act of dancing the mystery of the phallic dance and in the skins of animals. The Arunta tribes of Central Australia dance the Unthipa dance in the ceremony of young man-making at the time of circumcision. This tells the story of the way they came in what is known as the range all along. It is said to be the dance of the Unthipa women in the Alcharinga, who were beings of both sexes and who danced all the way until their organs were modified and they became as other women are. This denotes the status of the pre-totemic people, who were as yet undivided by the totemic rites of puberty, which are now illustrated in the mystery of the dance. In the initiation ceremonies of the males described by Messrs. Spencer and Gillen, page 381, a special dance of the women follows the making of the youth into a man who is now welcomed by them into the ranks of the elders. A number of young women came near. Each one is decorated with a double horseshoe-shaped band of white pipe clay which extends across the front of each thigh and in the base of the abdomen. A flexible stick is held behind the neck and one end grasped by each hand. Standing in a group, the women sway slightly from side to side, quivering in a most remarkable fashion. As they do so, the muscles of the thighs and the base of the abdomen. The object of the decoration and movement is evident. It is to incite the youths and prepare them for conumbium. At this period of the ceremonies, a general interchange and a lending of women also takes place. This women's dance goes on night after night for perhaps two or three weeks. 
The men sing the corroboree song, whilst the women dance the mystery of young man making and show the object and mode of it. In this case, the white pipe clay was substituted for the white undatha down, with which the female was usually embellished. Here, the customs of the totemic mysteries naturally suggest that a primary object in putting on fur and feather or down and dancing in the skin of the totemic animal at the festival of pubescence was to dramatize the coming age for sexual intercourse when this was determined by the appearance of the pubes, whether of the female or the male. There had been a pre-totemic period of promiscuity in which there was no regulated intercourse of sexes, no marriage by the group or of one half the group with the other half. At that time or in the pre-evil state, the earth as yet was undivided into south and north, the mythical cow was not yet cut in twain, or the mother separated into the two women. Much is told us by tradition if we can but interpret truly. It says the race of beings was not then divided, and had but one leg to go or stand on, meaning there was but one stock. All the earth, in later phrase, being of one blood and of one language. The sexes were not yet divided by the lizard, as female pubescence was quaintly figured. There was no cutting of the male or opening of the female with the fire stick or the stone knife by which the sexes were divided, or made or in the latter phrase, created into men and women. These were the inapertois, beings in the alteringa, who preceded women and men and were pre-totemic. These were the unopened or the uncircumcised, who had to be transformed into women and men by cutting and opening, that is, by introcision and circumcision or subincision, by which they were made into women and men in becoming totemic. Dancing, then, was a dramatic mode of rendering the mysteries of primitive knowledge in visible sign language. With the she-speaking peoples, Sofa, the name of the priest signifies the dancing man. The African Acholi, in their dances, says Sir H. Johnston, imitate animals most elaborately. An African potentate has been known to dance for some ten or fifteen minutes together in receiving a distinguished European visitor, like Richard Burton before he had represented all his own titles of honor and claims to admiration in the language of dance and gesture signs. With the Bechuanas, each totem has its own special dance, and when they want to know the clan to which a stranger may belong, they will ask, what dance do you dance? As an equivalent for the question of to what clan do you belong, these dances are continued in the initiatory ceremonies of totemism. They tend to show that the shapes and sounds and movements of the totemic animals were imitated in the primeval pantomime by way of proclaiming the clan to which that particular group belonged. The totemic type was thus figured to sight in gesture language before it could be known by name. Admission into the Dakota clan was effected by means of the great medicine dance. The medicine men of the Iroquois have four dances which are sacred to themselves no other person being allowed to dance these mysteries. The first is the eagle dance, the second the dark dance, performed in the dark. The other two are the pantomime dance and the witch's dance. The eagle being the bird of light, the sunbird, we may infer that the first two dances told the story of the beginning with light and darkness. 
which was thus rendered in gesture language and continued to be memorized in that fashion by those who danced such primitive mysteries. We also learn from the sacred dances of the Aborigines in the character of the bear, the wolf, the seal, the crab, or the other animal that the gesture language included an imitation of the totemic zootype. The Mandan Indians dance the buffalo dance, the heads of the dancers being covered with a mask made of the buffalo's head and horns. In other dances of the dog and bear totems, the dancers acted in the characters of the animals. The Lamas of Tibet dance the old year out and the new year in whilst wearing their animal masks. The snake dance is still performed by the Mokwa Indians of Arizona and also amongst the Australian Aborigines when they make the snake in their sacred procession of the mysteries. It was a common totemic custom for the brothers and sisters to perform their commemorative ceremonies or mysteries in the likeness of the totemic animal. In the Australian rites of initiation, the teachings and moral lessons are conveyed in object lessons, pantomimically displayed. The various totems are indicated by the language of gestures. The rock wallabies are initiated by jumping with the knees slightly bent and the legs kept wide apart. The kangaroos hop about in the likeness of the totemic animal. The howlings of a pack of dingoes or wild dogs are heard afar off, as if in the depth of the forest. The sounds grow less and less distant. At length, the leader of the band rushes in on all fours, followed by the others. They run around each other, on all fours, round the fire, imitating the action of wild dogs in the dingo dance. With the Inwats at their religious fetus and anniversaries of the dead, the biographies of the departed are told to the spectators in dumb show and dancing. With the Kakians of northern Burma, it is the custom to dance the ghost out of the house at the time of the funeral. The Egyptian mourners also accompanied the Manis on the way to Amenta with song and dance, as may be seen in the vignettes to the Book of the Dead, where the text deals with the mysteries of the resurrection. The same mystery is expressed in the black fellow's jumping and the white fellow when he rises from the dead. It used to be the custom in Scotland for dancing to be kept up all night long after a funeral not as a desire of getting rid of the spirit, but as an act of rejoicing and dancing the resurrection of the spirit. The onlookers often wonder why the performers in Gaelic and Celtic dances should, when furiously dancing, give forth such inhuman shouts and shrill blood-curdling cries. But there is nothing likelier than that these are remains of the language of animals and a survival of the primitive totemic practices. Leaping in the air and with a shout while dancing had a special dramatic significance. What this was may be inferred from the Egyptian funeral scenes. That which had survived as the dance of death in the Middle Ages was the earlier dance of the resurrection, or the rising again from the dead. The dancing occurs in the presence of the mummy, when this has been raised to its feet and set on end, which is then a figure of the risen dead. The rising again was likewise imitated in the dance. Hence the women who are seen to be jumping with curious contortions on some of the bas reliefs are acting the resurrection. It is their duty and delight to dance that dance for the departed. Thus sign language, totemism, and mythology were not merely modes of representation. 
They were also the primitive means of preserving the human experience in the remoter past, of which there could be no written record. They constitute the record of prehistoric times, the most primitive customs, ceremonial rites, and revels, together with the religious mysteries, originated as the means of keeping the unwritten past of the race in ever-living memory by perennial repetition of the facts, which had to be acted from generation to generation in order that the knowledge might become hereditary. This is a thesis which can be fully proved and permanently established. Before ever a folk tale was told or a legend related in verbal speech, the acting of the subject matter had begun, dancing being one of the earliest modes of primitive sign language. Not trailing clouds of glory? Have we come from any state of perfection as fallen angels in disguise with the triumphs of attainment all behind us? But as animals emerging from the animal, wearing the skins of animals, uttering the cries of animals, whilst developing our own, and thus the nascent race has traveled along the course of human evolution with the germ of immortal possibilities in it darkly struggling for the light, and a growing sense of the road being uphill, therefore difficult and not to the made easy, like the downward way to nothingness and everlasting death. It is now quite certain that speech was preceded by a language of animal cries, accompanied by human gestures, because like the language of the clickers, it is yet extent with the aborigines, amongst whom the language makers may yet be heard and seen to work in the prehuman way. The earliest human language, we repeat, consisted of gesture signs, which were accompanied with a few appropriate sounds, some of which may traceably continue from the predecessors of man. A sketch from Life in the Camp of the Mashona chief, Lo Benglua, made by Bertram Mitford, may be quoted much to the present purpose. He comes, the lion, and they roared. Behold him, the bull, the black calf of Machobane. And at this they bellowed. He is the eagle which preys upon the world. Here they screamed, and as each imitative shout was taken up by the armed regiments, going through every conceivable form of animal voice, the growling of leopards, the hissing of serpents, even to the sonorous croak of the bullfrog, the result was indescribably terrific and deafening. In this sign language, which was earlier than words, the red men acted their wants and wishes in expressive pantomime whilst wearing the skins of the animal that was pursued for food. They laid their case, as it were, before the powers previous to the hunt. Each hunt had its especial dance, which consisted in the imitation of the motions, habits, and cries of the animals to be hunted. They climbed like bears, built like beavers, galloped about like buffaloes, leaped like roes, and yelped like foxes. Travelers have detected a likeness betwixt the scream of the prairie dog and the speech of the Apache Indians who will imitate the animal so perfectly as to make it respond to them from the distance. On the night of the lunar festival, when waiting for the moon to rise, they will invoke her light with a concert of cries from their brethren of the animal world, which include the neighing of the horse, the whinnying of the mule, the braying of the ass, the screech of the coyote, the call of the hyena, the growl of the grizzly bear, when this totemic orchestra performs its nocturnal overture in the language of animals. 
The Zuni Indians, in their religious service, imitate the cries of the beasts, which are imaged as their fetishes and ceremonial rites at the Council of Fetishes. They sing a very long hymn or prayer chant, and at the close of each stanza, the chorus consists of the cries which represent their deities, called the prey gods, in the guise of their totemic animals. Hall, in his Life with the Esquimalt, tells us how the Inuit look up to the bear as superior to themselves in hunting the seal, because, as they say, the bear talks sealish and can lull the animal to slumber with his incantation. The Inuit have learned the secret of Bruin and repeat his language all they can to fascinate, decoy, and magically overcome the seal and capture it. But they are still beaten by the bear. Dr. Franz Boas has recently discovered the remains of a very primitive tribe of Aborigines near the boundary betwixt Alaska and British Columbia. They are called the Sutsout and are hunted to death by the Indians like wild beasts. They formerly consisted of two clans that rigidly observed the ancient law of totemic canubium, no woman being allowed to marry within her own clan. At present, there is but one clan in existence, and the men of this clan have been forced to seek for wives among the Indians of the Nas River. These tsutsout apparently talk in bird language. They cheep and chirp or whistle in their speech with a great variety of notes. The Supreme Spirit, Theramulin, who taught the Murong tribes whatever arts they knew and instituted the ceremonies of initiation for young man-making, is said to have ordered the names of animals to be assumed by men. Before the names could be assumed, however, the animals were adopted for totems, and the earliest names were more or less the cries and calls of the living totems. The mothers would be known by their making the cry for their totemic animal to which the children responded in the same pre-human language. The sow, say, is the mother. The children are her pigs. The mother would call her children as a sow, and the children would try to repeat the same sound in response. The totemic lioness would call her kittens by purring, and the cubs would respond by purring. The hippopotami, lions, and other loud roars would grow terrible with the sounds they made in striking dread into their children. When as yet they had no names nor any art of tattooing the totemic figures on the flesh of their own bodies, the brothers and sisters had to demonstrate who they were and to which group they belonged by acting the character of the zootype in the best way they could by crying or calling, lowing or grunting or puffing and posturing like the animals in this primitive pantomime or balmask. Thus, the sign to the eye and the sound to the ear were continued peri passu in the dual development of sign language that was both visual and vocal at the same time, when the brothers and sisters were identifying themselves, not with nor as the animals, but by means of them, and by making use of them as zootypes for their totems. The cliques of the pygmies, the San Bushmen, the Khoikhoi Hottentots and the Kafirs constitute a living link betwixt the human beginner and his predecessor, the ape. The Bushmen possess about the same number of cliques as the Cynocephalus, or dog-headed ape. The monkey mother also menstruates, another link betwixt the ape and the human female. The clickers, born of her as blood mother, would be known by their sounds as monkey men. Tatani, 
as a totemic monkey man raised to the status of a divinity in Egypt. Hanuman is the same in India, where the Jatwas of Rajputana claim to be the descendants of the monkey god. And the ape men, imitating the Sinophysalis, would be on the way of becoming the human clickers. Very naturally, naming by words would follow the specializing by means of the totemic types, as we have tree the type and tree the name, bull the type and bull the name, dove the type and dove the name, lynx the type and lynx the name. An instance is supplied by Frederick Bonney in his notes on the customs of the River Darling Aborigines, New South Wales, which is also to the point. He observes that the children are named after animals, birds, and reptiles, and the name is a word in their language meaning the movement or habit of one of them. The sound may be added. The totem, say, is an animal. First it was a figure, and from this a name was afterwards drawn, which at times, and probably at first, was the voice of the animal. The earliest formation of human society, which can be distinguished from the gregarious horde, with its general promiscuity of intercourse between the sexes, is now beginning to be known by the name of totemism, a word only heard the other day, yet nothing later than the totemic stage of sociology is fundamental enough as ground to go upon in discussing sign language, mythology, and fetishism, or in tracing the rootlets of religion and the study of the subject has just been commenced. It has been omitted with all its correlates and implications from previous consideration and teachings concerning the prehistoric past and present status of the scattered human family. On this line of research, the inquiries and explorations which go back to this tangible beginning are now the only profitable studies. The results of these alone can be permanent. All the rest were tentative and transitory, but... No satisfactory explanation of the origin of totemism has yet been given. So says the writer of a book on the subject. Fraser, J.G. Totemism The author of Primitive Marriage, who first mooted the subject in England, could make nothing of it in the end. According to his brother, a preface to the Patriarch, McLennan gave up his hypothesis and ceased to have any definite view at all on the origin of totemism. Nevertheless, McLennan was right in his guess that the so-called animal worship of the Egyptians was descended from a system of totems or fetishes. Through worship, we protest again and again is not the word to employ. In this connection, it is but a modern counterfeit. The totem in its religious phase was as much the sign of the goddess or the god as it had been of the motherhood or brotherhood. It was an image of the superhuman power. Thus, the Mother Earth as giver of water was imaged as a water cow. Seb, the father of food, was imaged by the goose that laid the egg. Horus, the bringer of food and water, was imaged by the fish or papyrus shoot. These, so to say, were totems of the nature powers. But when it came to worship, it was the powers that were the objects of supreme regard, not the totems by means of which the powers were represented. Not the water cow, the goose, the fish, the shoot, but the goddess Apt, and the gods Seb, Sebek, and child Horus. It is in the most primitive customs that we must seek for the fundamental forms of rites and ceremonies. It is in totemism, 
only that we trace the natural genesis of various doctrines and dogmas that have survived to be looked upon as a divine revelation, especially vouchsafed to later times, in consequence of their having been continued as religious mysteries without the guidance of the primitive gnosis. The human past in its remoter range might be divided then into two portions for the purpose, and described as pre-totemic and totemic. The first was naturally a state of promiscuity more or less like that of the animals, when there were neither totems nor law of taboo, nor covenant of blood, nor verbal means of distinguishing one person from another. The only known representatives of this condition now living are the pygmies of the Central African forests. By totemism we mean the earliest formation of society in which the human group was first discreted from the gregarious horde that groveled together previously in animal promiscuity. The subject, however, has various aspects. The term has many meanings, which have to be determined by their types. Many years ago, the present writer sought to show that totemism, mythology, fetishism, and the hieroglyphic system did not originate in separate systems of thought and expression, as any modern ism sets up for itself, but that these had a common rootage in sign language, of which there are various modes or forms. Totemism originated in sign language rather than in sociology, the signs being afterwards applied for use in sociology, as they were in mythology and fetishism. The name totem is supposed to have originated in the language of the North American Indians. The word totem exists in the Ojibwe language for a sign, a symbol, mark, or device of the group, gens, or tribe. The Reverend Peter Jones, an Ojibwe, tells the word Todem. Francis Asikinak, an Ottawa Indian, renders it by Ududam. The Abbey Thavenet, quoting from the Algonquin language, gives Nind Otem for my tribe and Kit Otem for thy tribe. The root of the word as here rendered is Tam or Dem. The name and things thus denoted are found to be universal for a group, a gathering, a collection, a total of persons, animals, huts, or houses. The Magarthum is the fratry or clan, of which there were twelve altogether. The Attic township was called a dem. The Sanskrit dama is the home. Greek domos, Latin domos, Slavonic domu, English dome. The tembe equals the dome is the roof and Nyamwezi. In Zulu, the Tumo is an assemblage. In Maori, the Tamin is a collection of people. Also, the Toma is a cemetery, like the Scottish Tom and the Tumali, where the dead were gathered together. Tomo, in archaic Japanese, denotes a gathering of persons who are companions. In Assyrian, likewise, the Timi are the companions. As is usual in the present work, we turn to Egypt to see what the great mother of civilization has to say concerning the Tem and the Totem. Tom in Copic signified joining together as in the Tem. The word Tem has various applications in Egyptian. It signifies man, mankind, mortals, also to unite, be entire or perfect. Moreover, it is a name for those who are created persons, as in making young men and young women in the totemic ceremonies, of which more hereafter. If ever the word created could be properly applied to the making of men and to those who are grouped together, it is in totemism. 
in Egyptian Tam or Tamti, is not only a total, but to be totaled. The sign of Tamti in the hieroglyphics is the figure of a total compassed of two halves. Thus, the Tam is one with the total, and the total comprised two halves at the very point of bifurcation and dividing of the whole into two. Also, of totaling a number unto the whole, which commences with a twofold unity. And when the youths of the Aborigines on the River Darling are made men of in the ceremonies of puberty, that is, when they are created men, they are called Tumba. It would seem as if the word Tem, for the total in two halves, had been carried by name, as well as by nature, to the other side of the world. For two classes in St. George's Sound are universally called Irenung and Tem. The whole body of natives are divided into these two moites. The distinctions, says Nind, are general, not tribal. They agree, however, with the Arunta division into two classes of the Charinga at the head of the totems, which represent the subdivisional distinctions. The Egyptian Tam is also a place name as well as a personal name for the social unit or division of persons. The Temai was a district, a village, a fortress, a town, or a city on the way to becoming the Dom, as we have it in the Herdom and the Kingdom, for the whole or total that is governed by a king. But the group name for people preceded the group name for a collection of dwellings, whether for the living or the dead. Here the Tem is a total, as we have it in English, for a team of horses, a brood of ducks, a litter of pigs. Egypt itself has passed out of the totemic stage of sociology in monumental times, but the evidence for its prehistoric existence are visible extent, and in the place names and in the mirror of mythology, which reflects aloft a pre-monumental past of illimitable length. In Egypt, the zootypes of the motherhoods and companionships had become the totems of the gnomes. Thus we find the gnome of the cow, the gnome of the tree, the gnome of the hare, the gnome of the gazelle, the gnome of the serpent, the gnome of the ibis, gnome of the crocodile, gnome of the jackal, gnome of the silurus, gnome of the calf, and others. These show the continuity of totemic signs. Also, the status of totemic sociology survived in Egypt when the artisans and laborers worked together as the companions and companies. The workmen in the temple and the necropolis were the companions. The rowers of a ship were a company like the seven Ari, or companions, on board the bark and the mythical representation. These companions are the Ari by name, and the totemic Ari can be traced by the name to Upper Egypt, where Ariu, the land of the Ari, is the name of the 17th gnome. At a remote period, Egypt was divided into communities, the members of which claimed to be of one family and of the same seed, which, under the matriarch, signifies the same mother blood and denotes the same mode of derivation on more extended scale. So ancient was totemism in Egypt that the totems of the human mothers had become the signs of goddesses, in whom the head of the beast was blended with the figure of the human female. The totems of the human mothers had attained the highest status as totems of a motherhood that was held to be divine, the motherhood in nature which was elemental in its origin. 
So ancient was totemism in Egypt that the Thames were no longer mere groups, clans, or brotherhoods of people, or a collection of huts like the Thames of the Ugogo. The human groups had grown and expanded until the primitive dwelling places had become great cities, and the burial mounds of still earlier cities, the zootype of the motherhood and the brotherhood, had become the blazon of the kingdom. If we take the city to be the Egyptian Temai, the lion was the totem of the Temai in Leontopolis, the hare was the totem of the Temai in Unut, the crocodile was the totem of the Temai in Crocodilopolis, the cat in the Temai of Pibast, Bubastes, the wolf was the totem of Linkopolis, the water cow of Teb, the oxyrhynchus of Pimaza, the apis of Nientapi, the ibis of Hermopolis, the bull of Mendes, the eel of Latopolis, the dog-headed ape of Sinopolis. When Egypt comes into sight, the Thames have grown into the Temes, and the totems into the signs of Nomis, and she has left us the means of explaining all that proceeded in the course of her long development from the state of primitive totemism in Africa, the state which more or less survives amongst the least cultured or most decadent races that have scattered themselves and sown the Camite wisdom, which they carried as they crawled around the world. And as the evidence shows, when this identifiable wisdom of the ancient motherhood was first carried forth from Egypt, she was in the most ancient totemic stage of sociology. The Tem, then, in the last analysis, as Egyptian, is a totality in two halves, also a total of created persons, that is, of those who were constituted persons or companions in the Tem, or group, by means of the totemic rite. In the other languages, the Tem, Deem, or Timi, are the group, or brotherhood. And in the languages of the Red Men, the Dodum, Otem, or Ododem, is the symbol of the group of brotherhood, or motherhood, which were known by their totem. Totemism really originated in the sign language of Inner Africa. Some 30 different totems have been enumerated as still extant amongst the natives of Uganda and Unyoro. And each totem is connected with a birthplace or place of origin for the family in relation to the elemental ancestry, which is the same as with the Arunta in Australia. But a great mistake has hitherto been made in supposing that a sign called the totem had its origin in sociology. The primitive type, now generalized under the name of the totem, was employed for various purposes as a factor in sign language. It might be personal, sexual, sociological, or religious. It might be the sign of legal sanction or a type of taboo. It might identify the human mother or the superhuman power that was invoked for water, for food and shelter, as the Mother Earth. Since the brief jottings on totemism were made in the natural genesis, much water has passed beneath the bridge. A flood of light has been poured out on the subject by Messrs. Spencer and Gillen in their invaluable work on the native tribes of Central Australia. The wisdom of the Egyptians is supplemented most helpfully by the traditions of the Arunta. The gods and goddesses may have been relegated to the Alcharinga, but much of the primitive matter has been preserved at a standstill which has been transfigured by continual growth in Egypt. 
It is shown by the Arunta and other Australian tribes that certain totemic districts were identified by or with the food they produce. That's the district of the kangaroos, the district of the emus, or the district of the wichetti grubs. The Arunta tribes are distributed in a large number of small local groups, each of which is supposed to possess a given area of country, and therefore of the food grown in it. Generally, the group describes themselves by the name of some animal, bird, or plant. One area belongs to the group who call themselves kangaroo men, another belongs to the emu men, another to the hakia flower men, another to the people of the plum tree. The tribal area of the Australian Uali is likewise divided into hunting grounds in relation to food. According to Sir George Gray, the natives say that the Balaruk family derived their name from the Balaruk, a small opossum, on account of their having subsisted on this little animal. And of the Nag Karm totem, he tells us that the Nagarnuk family obtained their name from living principally in former times upon this fish. These then were food totems. So likewise are the Wichetti grub, the kangaroo, and the emu of the Arunta groups. Scott Neend also tells us that the tribes of the Torndurup and Monkalan classes are in a measure named from the kind of game or food found most abundant in the district, which is the same as saying that the members of the emu totem were named from the emu bird or the kangaroos from the kangaroo animal, naming from food being subdivisional and later than the descent from the tree and rock or the charinga of the two primary classes. The most important ceremonies of the Arunta are performed for the sake of food, that is, for increasing the supply of the plant, animal, bird, or insect, which is the totem of the particular group that enacts the rite and makes the magical appeal. The emus perform, propitiate, and plead for abundance of emus. The wichetti grub people ask for plenty of beetles. These not only eat their totem, they are also its protectors. The totem was eaten ceremonially as a type of the food that was asked for, with its likeness drawn upon the ground in the blood of the brotherhood. It is obvious that both in Australia and inner Africa, the primitive totemic mapping out includes that of food districts, and that the special food of certain districts was represented by the totem of the family or tribe. At the time of the 6th Egyptian dynasty, one family branch of the Hermopolitan princes owned or possessed the gnome of the hare, whilst another governed the gnome of the gazelle. These in the primitive stage would be the food districts of the totemic hares and gazelles, and this status has been preserved in Australian totemism with the ownership retained by the group. The totemic origin of the zoo types assigned to the Egyptian gnomes is shown when the animals were not to be eaten as common food. As Plutarch says, the inhabitants of the Oxyrhynchus Gnome did not eat a kind of sturgeon known as the oxyrhynchus. Also, the people of Crocodilopolis would not eat the flesh of a crocodile. The notions of totemism previously entertained have been upset by the new evidence from Australia, which tends to prove that the totem was first of all eaten by the members of the group as their own especial food. Hence, they were appointed its preservers and cultivators and were named after it. According to the present interpretation, the totem primarily represented the maternal ancestor, the mother who gave herself for food and was eaten, and who was at the mythical great mother in Egypt, was the goddess Hathor in the tree, 
the suckler as Rarit, the sow, the nurse as Renut, the serpent, the insient mother as Apt, who was fleshified for eating as the totemic cow. The object of certain sacred ceremonies associated with the totems is to secure the increase of the animal or plant, which gives its name to the totem. Each totemic group has its own ceremony, and no two of them are alike. But however they may differ in detail, the most important point is that one and all have for their main object the purpose of increasing the supply of food, not food in general, but the particular food that is figured by their totem. For example, the men of the emu totem perform their special ceremony and pour out the oblation of blood in soliciting plenty of emu. There can be no mistake in the kind of food that is piously besought, as a likeness of the emu bird is portrayed on the ground in the blood of the tribe to indicate the power that is appealed to. Thus, in the very dawn of ownership by the group, when property was common and not several, the totem would be a sign of that which came to be called property as the special food of the totemic family or clan. A group of totemic kangaroos would be the owners and eaters of the kangaroo in their locality. A group of totemic emus would be the owners and eaters of the emu. Those whose totem was the tree would eat the fruit of the tree, a totem being the veritable image of the food. The women of the grass seed totem fed upon the grass seed in the Acharinga. The women of the Haki totem always fed upon the Haki flower in the Alcharinga. After the men of the Wichity Grub have performed the Intuchumia ceremony for increase of food, the grub becomes taboo to the members of the totem and must on no account be eaten by them until the animal is abundant and the young are fully grown. If this rule should be broken, it would nullify the effect of the ceremony. If the witchetty grub men were to eat too much of their token, the power of performing the ceremony for plenty would depart. At the same time, if they were not to eat a little of the totemic animal, it would have the same effect as eating too much. Hence the sacred duty of tasting it at certain times. The people of the emu totem very rarely eat the eggs. If an emu man, who was very hungry, found a nest of eggs, he would eat but one. The flesh of the bird may be eaten sparingly, and only very little of the fat, eggs and fat being more taboo than the meat. The same principle holds good to all the totems. A carpet snake man will eat sparingly of a poor snake, but he will scarcely touch the reptile, if it be fat. That was left like the finest grain for seed. So the members of the... Irakura totem do not eat their totem for some time after the ceremony of Intuchima. The man of the Idnamita totem, a large long-horned beetle, may not eat the grub after Intuchima until it becomes abundant. It is the same with the man of the bandicoot totem. But when the animal becomes plentiful, those who do not belong to the totem go out in search of one which when caught is killed and some of the fat put into the mouth of the bandicoot men, who may then eat a little of the animal. Again, the Arunta have a custom or ceremony in which the members of any local group bring in stores of the totemic plant or animal to their men's camp and place them before the members of the totem. Thus, as Mr. Spencer and Gillen remark, clearly recognizing that it is these men who have the first right of eating it, because it was their totem. In this social aspect, then, totemism was a means of regulating the distribution of food, 
and in all likelihood it must have included a system of exchange and barter that came to be practiced by the family groups. In this phase, the totem was a figure of the especial kind of food that was cultivated and sought to be increased by the magical ceremonies of the group. If we were to generalize, we should say that in the beginning, the food represented by the totem, whether animal or vegetable, was both cultivated or cared for and eaten by the members of that totem. In scarcity, it was eaten less and less and was more and more prohibited to the brotherhood for social, religious, or ceremonial reasons, and that this was certainly one of the origins in totemism. The totem as food may partly explain the totemic life tie when the human brother is taught to take care of the animal and told to protect it because his life is bound up with the animals so closely that if it dies, he too must die. Totemism, however, does not imply any worship of animals on the part of primitive men. It is the sheerest fallacy to suppose that the most undeveloped aborigines began to worship, say, 50 beasts, reptiles, insects, birds, or shrubs, because each in some way or measure fulfilled one of the 50 different conceptions of a divinity that was recognized beneath its half-hundred masks. Moreover, if primitive men had begun by worshipping beasts and holding their deadliest foes religiously sacred as their dearest friends, if they had not fought with them for very existence inch by inch every foot of the way to conquer them at last, they never could have attained supremacy over their natural enemies of the animal world. It would be going against all known natural tendency for us to imagine that human nature in the early stage of totemic sociology was confused with that of the lower animals. The very earliest operation of the consciousness which discreted the creature with a thumb from those who were falling behind him on four feet was by distinguishing himself from his predecessors. And the degree of difference once drawn, the mental landmark once laid down, must have broadened with every step of his advance. His recognition of himself depended on his perceiving his unlikeness to them. And it can be shown how the beasts, birds, reptiles, and fishes were first adopted as zootypes on account of their superhuman and superior power in relation to the various elements, and therefore because of their unlikeness to the nature of the human being. The ancestral animal, then, is neither an ideal nor imaginary being as a primitive parent, supposed to have been a beast or a bird, a plant or a star, any more than the first female as head of the Gaelic clan, Shetan, was a great cat or was believed to be a great cat by the brothers in the clan Sutherland. However ancient the mythical mode of representing external nature, some sort of sociology must have preceded mythology and been expressed in sign language. Actuality was earlier than typology. Thus, amongst the American Indians, we find that earth, water, wind, sun, and rain are totems, without being, as it were, put into type by mythology. This, which can be paralleled in Africa and Australia, points to a beginning with the elements of life themselves as the objects of recognition which preceded the zootypes, the elements of water, earth, air, and vegetation. It need scarcely be reasserted that totemism was a primitive means of distinguishing the offspring of one mother from the offspring of another, the children of the tree from the children of the rock, the hippopotami from the crocodiles, the serpents from the swine. The earliest sociology touches on promiscuity at the point of departure from the human horde, when the mother was the only parent known. The mother comes first, and from that point of departure, the Egyptian representation reflects the sociology in the mirror of the mythos. 
In the pre-Totemic stage, there was one mother as head of the family. This is repeated in Egyptian mythology. In totemism, the motherhood is divided between two sisters, or a mother and an elder sister. This is repeated in Egyptian mythology. In totemism, the dual motherhood is followed by the brotherhoods. This is repeated in Egyptian mythology, beginning with the twin brothers Sut and Horus, or the black vulture and the golden hawk, which are equated by or continued as the crow and the eagle hawk of Carween and Punjel in Australia. In totemism, the two brothers are followed by four or six in a group, and these are consorts of the sisters in group marriage. So is it in the Egyptian mythos. In this way, mythology will lend its searchlight to show the backward path of prehistoric totemism. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.